are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is sponsored by Great Northern Bow Company. At Great Northern Bow Company, they design and build every bow with you in mind and with respect for the long and noble hunter-gatherer lineage we are all connected to. They build hunting bows, bows designed to make you the very best bow hunter you can be. How do they do it? By paying attention to what really matters in a bow. Stability, smoothness of draw, reliability, performance, refined design, and by using carefully selected materials. Their bows have an understated beauty and refinement of appearance that will make them hold their appeal for a lifetime. And they still build their bows one at a time by hand. So consider making your next custom bow a great northern bow. And in the meantime, be sure to check out their website at gnbco.com. What's up, Nick? Oh, you know, hanging in there. You know, things are things are getting a lot sunnier here in Michigan. And uh, we're, uh, yeah, we're getting, we're getting through this whole thing. You know, the numbers are coming down. Jobs are starting to open up. Um, you know, I, I have uh, actually our day, we don't really have daycare right now. and just rotated it back to work. So I'm, I've got the kids and I'm at home working. So that's been, uh, that's been interesting. But other than that, man, you know, I, I, I really can't complain. It's just, I, I've, I've gotten outside a little bit more and just communicated a little bit more with people in person. And, and it just seems a whole lot better right now. What about well, you? That's good. Uh, it's good to hear. Um, pretty much same thing with me. I mean, it's not, not much changes in my life. I, uh, uh, we did, we actually had our first, uh, local trad shoot last, uh, let's see, was that last weekend or week before last weekend before last, the first weekend, yeah. the first Saturday of the month. Um, that was the first one we had had since, uh, March, I guess. Um, mm. had a, I mean, had a decent turnout. It was probably 30 or more people. We normally have, you know, anywhere from 50 to 80, depending on the shoot. So, I mean, it was a smaller crowd, but, uh, got out, set the targets that morning. And, um, I actually only shot the course once I had to, I had to get home and finish up some, as usual, string orders. I had, um, <laughs> I had, uh, a order that I was waiting on material, and stuff to finish up for um, for Bob Rum, and then uh, right on the heels of that, and that's what I spent this last weekend working on was wrapping those up and and starting on a big order for um, David Darling. Man, I'm I'm tickled to death to hear things have kind of picked up a little bit for him because he placed a he placed a big order for strings. So um, I'll be working on those some again this week. But but the shoot was good. Um, t- to be honest, I. I'm ashamed to say I've really not shot much at all just with everything, you know, mm-hmm. that's been going on. And, sure. and I, I was tickled to death, man. I, I honestly feel like I shot the course really well. Um, the only target I, I, I didn't touch foam was, wow, it was probably 25, 30 yard shot. And I just shot over its back. But, um, so yeah, it was a lot of fun to get out and, and do that again. I've, I've really kind of missed that. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of toying with the idea of maybe, maybe going out and do a little fishing this weekend. I haven't decided yet, but it's father's day. I may, I may take a half a day or something and just go. Yeah. Treat yourself. You got those beautiful fly rods. You have to get out there. Like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get out. You haven't, so yeah, you haven't got out there at all this year. You haven't had time to do anything, let alone do that. (laughs) No, I haven't. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really wanting to. So that may be. 
like I said, I may I may take a half a day this weekend and and do that uh, and bring me back to the the, the fly rods or fly fishing because I do want to give a little teaser about a guest we got coming up. But I know you did oh. some fishing this was it this past weekend? Yeah, it was. Um, I went up north and my kid or my uh, my parents had um, Aubrey and Mackenzie up north in Sheboygan uh, all uh, all week pretty much to give us just a little bit of a little bit of time and i needed it obviously so um they got to see their grandparents and do some things they and my mom and dad took them all over you know to Quaminon falls akiak falls um all kinds of like some nature preserves like that all all over the place so they really got it they really had a good time there so i figured my you know my dad said you know instead of us bringing you bringing them down why don't you just come up for the weekend and you know we you never walleye fish with me you know and i had to think about it and i was like yeah, you're right. I, I haven't ever water or you know walleye fish with you. I, I in fact I hadn't fished with my dad since I was 16, 17 years old. Probably more like sixteen years old. Because um, wow. it was never yeah I know because it was never really my thing, but it was always my dad's thing. We'd go with him, but it it wasn't something that we you kind of had to twist my arm to do it. Like I did, I just didn't see. I didn't even like fish then. Um, it just seemed boring to me. So I never really got into it, but we, we fished all the time and enjoyed each other, but you know, the fishing just wasn't my thing. So I've never really fished with my dad. Um, even when we did some lake trout fishing, um, we like on a, on a boat with downriggers, like I, I went, but it was more for the fact that I got like cupcakes for breakfast, (laughs) 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 you know, stuff like, Stuff. I'd sit there and read the, the, I remember, import, I, the important stuff. Yeah, I remember bringing like a stack of comic books out there. I am we're talking about the straits, you know, over and you know, around Bablo Island. Right, and stuff. right. So uh, I just uh, they'd let me steer the boat sometimes, and actually, that's what they mainly did when I was on there. But those I, uh, those aren't as fishing trips as like you know having a pole and going out and and actually you know, fishing off a bank like we used to do when we were kids. So yeah, I went, I, I went up and I was going to get my fly rod and do it. I had my eight weight, my spray rod and, and that's spray, not spay. <laughs> but I had, uh, I had that, that one that Scott made me. And, um, I had, I, I'm like, okay, what do I need? I asked Scott, I'm like, what do I need Scott to go and, and get walleye? Like, I, I'm not really sure. Cause my dad throws some beads on a little spinner with a crawler harness in a, in a big sinker that's basically like what my dad does and he loves it and he drifts it so i'm thinking well i can drift that with a fly rod that's no problem so i after i talked to scott scott's like yeah you probably want a sinking line you're gonna have to get down to him pretty quickly you know i'm like okay i've got fluorocarbon leaders and tippets i'm like um i yeah i should probably have a sinking line uh with a short leader and uh you know i'm gonna have to have something that's gonna get down there and I started looking and then be strong enough. And I started looking at my stuff and I'm like, I don't have any of this stuff. <laughs> I, I went to the fly shop and it was like, if I don't, I'd have to drop like a solid $125 just to do that that weekend. And I'm like, maybe I asked the guy at the fly shop, um, you know, hey, you know, would you honestly tell me, would you would you do this or would you just spend key? Because I would absolutely just spend cast in your situation. I'm like, okay, well, that's nice of you because I would have spent like $120. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, I got a couple things I needed, and I went home, and we went out um, Saturday morning, 
And, uh, you know, I'd always heard, you know, walleye, you know, you always see that thing on the internet, walleyes fight like dish rags, prove me wrong, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> so I got, I, I caught one I on my like second cast and um, I got it right by shore at the end of a drift. And I, I thought I was snagged. I thought I was getting snagged in the weeds. Um, you know, it hit a couple times and I'm like, okay, I'm snagged. And I started moving it and I was like, all right, I got a stick. I'm going to have to, I'm like, it keeps moving. And my dad's like, you sure you don't got a fish? I'm like, man, don't feel like a fish. And I got it up and sure it was a, it was a walleye. Dad's like, yeah, you got a walleye. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So we, we landed it and I'm like, wow, that's my first walleye. I've never, never gone walleye fishing at all. Um, and I caught a nice big bass after that too, a nice smallie. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I haven't, I haven't done any, any bait fishing in a really long time and I didn't think I was going to enjoy it that much as comparison to a fly rod, but I got to admit it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Hey, you've done something so. I've never done because I've, I've, I've never, never fished for walleye, never caught a walleye. So, um, I'm sure they have them. I don't know. Actually, I don't think they even have them here in Georgia. I think they have them in some places like up North Carolina and so forth, you know, mm-hmm. close to where I grew up. But anyway, I've never caught one. So, yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. Like, and, and it's, it's funny because, you know, bass are fighters and those don't fight at all. So it was kind of like, I got the biggest bass I ever caught right after that. And, uh, skunk my dad. He actually, no, he caught a, uh, he caught a little bass too, but he never, we never got into any other walleye. So now he wants everybody to come up for the 4th of July and me and my brat or my brother, Matt and my brother, Isaac and, and my mom and everybody go walleye fishing. So we might do that. Now it's going to be a really good time. If we do, it'll be the first time the family's fished together since we were little kids. Now was the, um, was the bass that you caught largemouth or smallmouth? Smallmouth. Okay. Yeah. I've never caught a largemouth. I've caught a few smallmouth in the past. They 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 fight pretty pretty good. Um Yeah, you know, they, they jump a little bit and and you know, stuff like that, depending. Yeah, um, I would say but, I've definitely caught a lot more largemouth, but I I have caught some smallmouth in the past. Mm-hmm. So I cast terrible though on spin casting, by the way. I, I, I was embarrassed just because like I throw it, I was throwing it like I was rearing back to chuck a to chuck a baseball into the infield, <laughs> or like, or like an alley oop in basketball, just kind of like bringing the rod back and just kind of whooshing it up in the air and with this big lob. And uh, my dad hardly moved when he was casting, and I was like, "How is he doing that?" And he goes, "Yeah, you see that piece down there below the reel, with all that room to hold on to it. Yeah, you hold it." there and where you are right now and just flick the rod so i was i just looked comical but i couldn't do it i tried a couple times and made a huge i thought i had i thought i had messes when i went fly fishing i bird's nest reels and (laughs) yeah dude (laughs) it constantly you need to try you need i need to see you with a bait caster then oh my god no i don't (laughs) know about that (laughs) you know it was it was a lot of fun though and i it tickled my dad to death and i had never i mean we started talking about fishing since i started fly fishing and he you know it never occurred to me i should go up and fish with him that's very cool (laughs) yeah so it was it was a good time man so and you mentioned you mentioned uh you mentioned the fly rods and you mentioned scott so i I do want to take a chance to kind of throw a few teasers out there and and then we'll we'll jump into uh, part two of the on the ground challenge. But um, so 
for anyone that has for anyone that's ever fly fished, for anyone that's ever been uh, interested, intrigued, or or uh, just kind of dreamed about the you know the old split bamboo fly rods that you you read so much about. Um, right now, our guest, our next guest that's scheduled to be on, that's that's what we're going to be talking about. We might be talking about a few other things as well, but um, this gentleman has actually, in the last year or so, um, gone out and, and he's built regular fly rods in the past, but he got the desire to, to start building split bamboo fly rods and uh, I don't know the, I know parts of the story, um, and rather than get into them here, I'll save them for the podcast, but it really, really cool stuff. And I actually got to, to cast one of them or actually two of them uh, a few months ago. And man, they were, they were fantastic. A little bit different feel than definitely different in graphite, a little bit different feel than, than even fiberglass, but, um, it didn't take long and you, you could really you could lay out some line with with either one of the ones he had so well, i'm really I've, looking uh, forward to that conversation i've had a um yeah me too i've i've had a couple people tell me like i, I think i listened to a couple other like the orvis podcast or something about um about bamboo they had a couple guests on there and now is it true that they feel are they slower than gla- than glass and, um or is it just in the way because they weigh so much well now they it and it's it's so it's definitely heavier although i would say it's not really noticeable i think my opinion is you're probably looking for it more because of the things you've read mm-hmm. but it's definitely not it's not overly overly so um and as far as it being slower again i don't know i mean it, it definitely if you compare it to like a graphite rod yeah. But the ability to fill the rod load when you're casting and, and really being able to lay out some line and shoot some line, uh, man, you're not at a handicap with one. Uh, at least not the ones that, that, you know, this gentleman had made. So um, Yeah, I'm really good at I'm really gonna have to possibly hit this gentleman up in the future and try this because I've just I've I've read about it, but it's something that and they're gorgeous too, like looking at a self bowl. Sure. Um they just looks it looks like something that could be really neat and i wonder if that's almost the dark the darkest of the dark sides because now you're just not coming back after you fish a bamboo rod i don't don't know i i i'm so and that's the weird thing even if i had one and i I do think i'll end up getting one at some point i i I mean even though i love my my modern glass rods i still go back to my graphite i think i'd fish them all um it's it's a little different i mean just the feels are all different Right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I I think so too. Like I didn't think you know after I started fishing with that glass three weight. But honestly, I fished with my four weight all year, just my the rod I started on, um, and I still really like that rod. Probably because that's the rod I learned to cast on, so it feels like home. But right, you know, still, you know, they I like I like to feel the the way a glass rod loads sometimes, and the way a graphite rod loads sometimes, um, and it might depend on the river too. So, we oh awesome man. Yeah, I and then that, uh... and then on the on the heels of that, um, and I'm not sure how this one's going to work out timing wise, but um, I spoke to a gentleman today and have him tentatively lined up for the middle of July to record. So that one's a little bit further out, but another one that I'm real excited about on the lines of some of the other um, uh, guys that I've. I've tracked down and and had on the podcast like jim neighbors and paul bruner and some others 
Um, this gentleman is probably one of the most well-known whitetail hunters there is. And uh, like I said, chatted with him today, had a great conversation. He seems to be excited about um, being on the show. So uh, the first window that we could get lined up for both of us was the 15th. And that's a little bit subject to change, but I feel real good about it. So uh, that's that's definitely going to be one people want to want to watch for and listen for. But uh, speaking awesome. of speaking of whitetail hunting, um, <laughs> uh, I did want we did want to kind of pick up our our conversation from the last time about um, hunting on the ground. Like I said, it's something that I think both of us get get a, a good number of questions about, um, and. We we've kind of put this out as a challenge. We we want people that listen to the show to to make a commitment this year to actually get out and and spend spend some time actually trying to get a whitetail on the ground. If you haven't if you haven't done so in the past, if you you know you're kind of um, mystified by it, and you think it's it can't be done and all that you know that kind of thing, or you can't hunt whitetails the way that way where I live. Yes, you can. Um, it may be harder um, in some areas than the others. Uh, without offending all my my Michigan friends, I'll be honest. I really think I could kill a deer easier in in Michigan on the ground than I can here in Georgia, um, especially well, on, pub, on public land. I, um, I've, I I don't think you're too far off there. <laughs> I hate to say it, but uh, yeah, having hunted in Georgia too and hunted deer there, it, it's definitely different. It's different in feel, and I they, I think that there's they're just way more skittish there. You just don't you don't see you never see a whole body. Yeah, so. you really you really don't. And I think you know, and I don't know. I would love to be able to get inside a deer's mind, um, and 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 understand why that is. I think part of it is pressure, but at the same time, I often think you know maybe it's you know just different genes, maybe uh, different different subspecies i don't know but i I do know that you know hunting deer in different states you can definitely see that um, while a lot of the behaviors are the same a lot of times they they do act differently um i hunted indiana a couple times and and again no offense to anybody that lives in indiana and it may have just been the area that i was hunting and i was hunting you know private land but man you could get away with murder of those deer they just didn't care i mean it (laughs) It, it it just beat anything you've ever seen. Um, they it's almost like they'd come out and just stand in front of you and dance around begging you to shoot them. Um, I'm exaggerating <laughs> a little bit, but it was it was just completely different than than you know hunting here. So, well, um, you you heard it you heard it, gang. Indiana bow hunters who are, <laughs> not, who are listening to this and are not on our Facebook page, the traditional outdoors community. You should go on there, answer the questions. And tell us how hard it is to hunt hunt Indiana deer. That's right. We want it. to hear your stories. Because I'll be I'll be happy to share mine with you. Because it's uh, the only state I've ever hunted. Is every time I went to Indiana, I filled my tag the first day. Um, so uh, and again, part of that could be you know where I was hunting. I hunted the same place both times. But corn so, fed far- corn fed farm bucks. Uh, yes, they were, and and both of the ones that I took were were nice. Uh, both of them were actually ten points, um, and one of them one of them is is the the uh, the horns are still on my wall. The other one, he had a lot. He had several broken tines. He was he was just a bruiser, and I actually ended up. I'm still using the horns from that buck as my that's my rattling horns. I've been using them for God. 
probably close to 20 years now, I guess. Wow. It's been a long time. So That's awesome. So you and I, you and I kind of tossed around a, a few ideas. Um, I'm not sure where this is going to go, but we have a general, a general topic we're going to focus on as far as you know hunting on the ground, and that's um, deer behavior. I think we'll touch on a few things um, from everything from terrain to to you know looking at how a deer is behaving with regards to trying to get a shot off. Um, but I know you had some you had some initial thoughts there, so I'm gonna quit talking for just a minute and toss it back to you. I mean, when when you think about hunting on the ground and deer behavior, what's kind of the first thing that comes to your mind that you're either focused on or you think about or you plan for? Well, you know, we 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 talked a little bit about um, about that last week. We got into it when we were talking about the ground hunting situation out of the ground blind that you put me in in Georgia one trip and how I got my major award shooting in that tree and um, how I didn't, how I didn't think that I didn't think the deer were going to come in that fast. And that, that's part of it. Um, where, where we were located is part of it. And then what that beer, that deer was going to do. And then it got me thinking about um, just hunting on the ground in general and how hard it is to draw. And, how much I think about what where a deer's at emotionally or you know mentally emotionally habitually or whatever that time of year for whatever reason to give me an idea of what I'm going to expect and at first I was just going to say hey Steve let's talk about how you know if a deer is spooked you know just sometimes it's wise not to shoot or or you know something like that or you know maybe shoot lower or whatever you're going to do or, or just be be wary about that but there's really more to it than than just that you know whether they're feeding or or anything you know you know feel free to jump in on any of those points I, it's kind of hard for me to describe it's kind of like it, it, it's actually got a couple different factors to it i think yes and and you know it's and i honestly been sitting here thinking about it a little bit um one of the things that you said when we you know, when we were talking before we press record was that you didn't, you didn't know necessarily how it differed that much from hunting from a tree stand mm-hmm. um, with regards to watching a deer's behavior or thinking about a deer's behavior. Yeah. And, and I've been thinking about that a little bit and I, here's, here's the only thing I can tell you. I think for me, as far as from my perspective, the way I the way I typically approach a, a, a hunting location, whether it's going to be on the ground or in the stand, um, without really, I guess without really thinking about it and planning about it so much, I will tell you that there's definitely differences in the way I typically approach the two scenarios. So um, while I will definitely set up on a food source at times, um, hot oak dropping acorns, maybe it's Maybe it's persimmons, maybe late season it's privet, which I know privet's not prevalent across the country. If you don't know what privet is, do a Google search and look it up. But um, here in the here in the South, privet's uh, one of those things that uh, late season when everything else is is either consumed or, or dead, the privet's just a, a magnet for, for mm-hmm. deer feeding. Um, so most of the time while there are times that I do that I will say the majority of the stands that I hunt 
and that I set up to hunt out of are really along travel travel corridors, natural funnels, natural pinch points, um, edges of transition zones, which I do want to talk about that a little bit more because that is also a, 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 a good thing to think about as far as hunting from the ground. But um, I know the deer are likely to be moving. I know the deer are likely to be moving um, maybe not so slowly and probably – Again, unless I'm hunting a food source, there's not a there's not a big reason for them to stop in most situations. Now, again, that can change if I'm if I'm setting up on something during the rut to hunt a scrape, or maybe it's a a, a rub line, something like that. That's a little bit different. Um, but just the general areas that I hunt is typically, again, hunting travel corridors, hunting trails, hunting merging trails, intersections, uh, places where multiple trails either split or merge together. Um, I think you won't remember this, Nick, but, or you may remember this. You went scouting with me, uh, during the summer one time, and we actually went and scouted up, up at, um, McGraw Ford, where you, where you've hunted. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the, the place we went to where you walked up on that huge orb spider? The oh yeah, was, I absolutely remember that. <laughs> so that's the one place that I actually took one time and posted it on Facebook where, uh, from my stand, I took a picture and then I took and just used a, a in the in the uh, image software on my computer. I took and drew a, a yellow line on each one of the trails that were intersecting right there in that one spot. And you know that was a place. I think it was like seven or eight trails coming together in one place mm-hmm. um, right there. And that's almost impossible to hunt from the ground. The 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 chances of actually you know uh, an animal coming in from any one direction you. You just can't set up on it and plan for that. So in sure. most time, those situations, I'm going to be in a tree. Where it gets different for me in most situations, and you alluded to this when you were talking about the, the blind I had set you up in um, for the, the major award, most of the time if I'm going to set up on the ground, I'm going to set up in a place where my expectation is that the animals are going to be calm, Probably first and foremost, I want I want them to be calm, and two, I want them to be either moving fairly slowly, or I want there to be some reason that I can expect that 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 animal is going to stop and not just pass through without ever without ever stopping. That could be food or browse. It could be um, a licking branch. It could be a, a scrape or a community scrape or something like that. Just something that I think is going to cause them to pause. Just for a few, you know, a few seconds maybe, um, and that one spot that you had set up, I uh, had you set up in that morning, was not one of those locations. It was one <laughs> that most of the time when the deer went through there, they were going to be moving. And I think we talked about this, you know, last time that yep. it's open. Um, there's 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 a pretty good distance, and I don't know what draws the deer through this area because it's open. There's not. For them to get to safety, they have to run. I mean, there's there's nothing. They can't just, like, hop and bound right into um, cover, which is a bit unusual. Um, you know, the closest would be those pines, which was probably another 15, 20 yards beyond where they were when you shot. So, mm-hmm. anyway, that those are the differences for me. When I'm in a tree stand, I'm typically trying to hunt over areas that I feel like have the highest probability for deer traffic, um, and I really don't care so much 
as to what kind of traffic, whether they're moving or not, because being elevated, I've got much more opportunity to get away with a little bit of movement, uh, especially once the deer is passed by or is actually passing by me to draw, get the shot off without being detected. You don't have that luxury on the ground. So on the ground, I want them moving slower where I can, I can read their body language. I can, you know, hopefully uh, verify that they're, they're calm. They're, they're not wired. They're not ready to just, you know, tear out the first time an acorn hits the ground, which I've actually seen them do. Um, And there's also the chance that they're going to be focused on something else that's going to allow me to draw, whether that's, you know, they're searching for acorns as they're eating or, you know, again, if they're at a, a scrape or a, um, um, a rub or a licking branch, those kind of things. So I do keep all those in mind when I'm thinking about a place I'm going to hunt from the ground. And I'll you stop ju- there for a minute. You, you just uh, brought up a really good point, actually. Um, I think that, you know, when you're, okay, so when you're on the ground, you're already limiting yourself. And... When you're limiting yourself, I think it's important in that scenario that, or at least it's worked for me, to limit the chance of screwing up. And what I mean by that is, a lot of times, especially when I first started hunting on the ground, it was a little overwhelming because you know I would pick my I would pick my tree or whatever I was going to do to sit against or or whatever or find my cover, and I wouldn't like pick any particular lane or or you know cut a shooting lane or anything like that and um because i never really knew where a deer you know especially being inexperienced i never knew where, where any where the deer were going to come from in most cases so i would think well uh you know can i shoot here can i shoot here can i turn around you know and, and just trying to figure out like all the different ways i could get a shot off on a deer like okay if a deer went there would i be able to shoot it if a deer went there would i be able to shoot it um and that kind of that just kind of just gives you a recipe for disaster like you don't know you'd be better off i i now now that i'm more experienced in doing this i tend to pick places that have one maybe two really good opportunities like i'm set up on i know exactly where i think the deer is going to go um or at least what side they're going to come from uh, things like that. And I can, you know, turn my shooting arm to that angle. Cause like, you just can't get away with enough movement on the ground to be able to just readjust and move and all this stuff when you're going to draw, where if you're up in a tree stand, you could change your position a little bit and you have the freedom to, you know, if they are coming in at a wrong angle, you can kind of adjust it. Um, you don't really have that on the ground. You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. I definitely do. Yeah. Like um, I like having like one, one lane, and then maybe a backup lane to worry about, and that's it. Like, that's what I'm set up for. I'm not set up on a particular spot where I think I'm just going to have all these opportunities and all these different shots on anything that walks by. That's that's what I mean. So so, so that, that that actually brings up a good place to kind of talk about one of the things that I've, I've mentioned before um, about, you know, transition lines, transition areas. And, and I do think in a lot of situations those make – ideal places to set up on the ground and i'll give you some examples um and you've hunted you've hunted at least one of them with me mm-hmm. uh the the blind that you hunted a couple of times a few years ago in the river came um yep. that's a really good example uh here in georgia and especially on some of the the um public land that i hunt you will have 
um, where in the past they've gone in and clear cut the hardwoods and usually they replant those in, in pines. Um, and what typically happens is, especially until the pines get, I don't know, to the point where they're, they're, the base of the tree is six to eight inches in diameter, it's really, really thick. Um, there's the, the, the honeysuckle and the, the blackberry vines and all the stuff that we have here in the south kind of grows up with those pines. And, you know, it can be downright brutal to even get in it. I've, I've been scouting with Brandon before, and between the two of us, we were just, I mean, it sounded like a bulldozer going through because uh, we were just tearing tearing the, the vegetation just to get through it. It's that thick. Um, you just you, There's no other way to get through it. But what that does is it, it, it really, it's not only a transition line for the whitetails, but it gives them a really good sense of security because in one jump, you can't see them. They just, I mean, they literally just can dis- disappear. Mm-hmm. It just absorbs yep. them. Um, and if you can find situations like that where, and you, and you do see them a lot, where there's a very active, well-used trail that walks right along the edge of that transition line, then if you got the wind in your favor, you can set up just inside. you got tons of cover, um, both behind you and in front of you. You have to clean a little shooting lane. And those are the stop, the places that when I think about, you know, areas that I might want to hunt this fall that I need to be, you know, uh, setting up now, that's the, that's the kind of areas I'm talking about. Cutting a few shooting lanes and creating a little pocket that I can get in there and hunt but it, it still goes to what you're saying. You, you, you may only have three shot opportunities there. You'll have one perfectly broadside and two at quartering away angles, depending on which way the animal's moving. Um, and the good thing about most of those, those zones like that that I hunt is it can be good in the morning or the afternoon. They're going you know, from bedding to food in the, in the afternoon and from food to bedding in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll have you could potentially have the animal walking either way. You started to say something? No. Oh, I no, thought that, you, you. I thought you was getting ready to come. No, up. you summed it up nicely. Um, and I think and you know there's there's probably something I I hit on when I first started talking about this, but you know just being inexperienced versus experienced. And you know if I think about you know you putting me in that spot with that transition point and the way you looked at it, you know at that time what I was probably thinking my idea of ground hunting was I know a pretty good, I had like, I got a pretty good idea where this deer is going to walk within 10 or so yards of me. But just because the terrain looks right, like where you're looking for with, with more experience and more knowledge, you're looking at, okay, I know exactly what they're doing, you know, at time of day and or time of year transition points things like that and you're kind of just you're you're fine-tuning it i guess so with time you kind of you kind of fine-tune it i guess that's what i'm trying to say i i and yes i do get that but here's what i will tell you too is um kind of showing you some of that stuff when you were here and and talking it out with you since then i've seen i've seen both seen and heard you talk about situations where you you went back to that and you remembered the those lessons so that you know that's mm-hmm. that's good you're paying attention now here's yep. the one question i'll ask you because i don't think we ever talked about this but if you look at both of those scenarios where 
you hunted, uh, it, understanding that what was there maybe 150 yards between um, those two blinds? Mm-hmm. Is there um, is there anything else about that those two locations that stands out to you with regards to why they could be regularly reliable from the perspective of wind? Well, the cane. You're talking about the cane blind, right? Well, I'm talking about either one of them. The either the cane blind or the the canopy blind that was made under that downed pine. It applies to both of them. And obviously, mm. you 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 haven't thought about it. So, well, I the only thing I, I can think of is that 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 cane blind was right at the base of that huge, huge not mountain but ridge. Um, on one side, water on the other, and then. It was a and it was pretty much wide open, other than that cane blind. And then on the other side, further down the creek, in the blind in the in the blind where I missed that doe, it was pretty brushy, like in not very not too many places to go. But I'm probably not hitting on what you're you're asking me. <laughs> nope, you're not. That's that's okay. That's okay. Um, you did mention the 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 mountain there on that um, river cane blind, and we'll I want to talk about I want to talk about thermals in a minute. Um, but no, the, so both of those blinds that you were hunting, even though the way it was almost like an L shape, you come into one and then if you wanted to go to the second one, you had to make that left, you know, you had to turn to the left and, and walk back towards what is that? The East, I think on that particular, that particular track. Um, but the, the big Creek there behind it does the exact same thing. And what I had noticed over time, and one of the reasons I think that you could, because I always found that unless it was a breezy day, um, you know, if it was a calm day, I could I could hunt that just about any time. And the reason being the the water from that creek being colder, because I mean, obviously, even up until December, it's typically pretty warm here, mm-hmm. but that water's a lot cooler. And between the the colder water and the movement of that water, which was carrying it towards the river away from where you were hunting, typically keeps the the wind pulled off of that flat. And you almost, not always, but you can routinely depend on the the air currents are going to be either in your face or to your um, at your your what am I thinking. Uh, 10 or 11 o'clock but either way where you were sitting yeah. i know this isn't gonna make sense to to people that weren't sitting there but the point being again unless it's a a, a, a windy day where the wind is blowing in a very specific direction so on a, on a calm typical calm day it it's going to float the air current's going to move towards that river um yeah and i do remember those days being dead like they were pretty calm like yeah. dead calm that morning in fact i missed that dough was it was the quietest morning I've had in a long time. And if you'd put a if you'd put a, a marabou feather or something like that out at you know bow length away from you that morning and watched it, uh, almost the entire time you would have seen it moving towards you, which was towards the water and the water moving away from you and down towards the river. Interesting. I'd never thought of that before. Um, and you can see the same thing if you've got um, so ponds will do the same thing. Ponds you have to be a little bit more you have to watch them a little bit more. And, um, InFault talks about some of this, which 
was funny when uh, Tom and I was talking about one of when I was staying with him for one of those hunts. We were talking about some of this. I'd never heard of Dan um, until Tom mentioned him and then got to looking at it. Um, and some of the same things that I'd seen was the same things that he had seen. The only difference was he's using um, uh, milkweed, and I was using a feather. I would typically have a feather, and I would either uh, clip it on a. Uh, I had I keep several of them in my pack. Um, and you've seen these. I keep a clothespin mm-hmm. with a length of thread about six to eight inches long with a marabou feather tied to the end of it. And before I climb up my tree, I'll put a, I'll just clip it onto a, a little sapling or something that I can see from my stand. And I can watch the wind all the time from while I'm sitting up in the tree stand. And that's what I would notice was, the, you know, places like that from this water and if I'm hunting on the ground. But I would see that the water had an effect on what the air was doing and the same thing goes for a pond if you've got um let's think about it from a perspective of overnight the air temperature drops drastically in most areas even during the summer it might be you know here it might be 95 100 degrees during the day and then at night it may get down into the 70s you're talking about a 20 plus degree shift water doesn't cool off that fast so when you've got bodies of water that the, the water builds up and holds this heat longer than the air around it, it's going to play havoc with the, the, the air currents around that water in the mornings and in the evenings. Because Well, mostly in the mornings because overnight the air's cooled off, but the water doesn't. So that's why when you go up to pond on a cool morning during the summer, what do you see? You see fog rising everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you can see it rising off that water. Well, that's why it rises and it's going to pull the air around it with it as it does so so again some of those things that you know people don't think about but you can you can definitely pay attention to it and find patterns where you can use it to your advantage i I definitely did not think about that creek in that way (laughs) i can assure you (laughs) that's a really good tip though because yeah we do hunt on we do hunt on ponds and stuff quite a bit um, just like I said, it's not something I would just say anybody, you know, that thinks about that. If you if you have areas that you hunt, especially if it's maybe it's a maybe it's a dry, a dry summer and this fall, the season opens and it's you're still in a drought wherever you are. And water becomes a water becomes a, a, a it's not a food source, but it mm-hmm. it becomes something that the animals have to have. And you can yeah. definitely use that to 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 hunt over. Um, but pay attention to what the air, the water's doing to the, the, the current air currents. Um, speaking of which, um, do you ever think about when you're setting up or looking at a place to hunt on the ground, do you ever think about, um, how thermals will impact it and what that will do? Oh yeah, definitely. And we, we think about that a lot, um, you know, with where me and uh, the Johns hunt and Jamie and Rob, I mean, we've got all of that, that Michigan hilly terrain. So we definitely have to think about that, whether you're set, you're setting up uphill or downhill or, or in what time of day it is. So, so for sure, if you, if you were going to, um, trying to think how I want to ask this question. Not trying to trip you up. I'm just trying to think of a good a good scenario for 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 you know people that might not be thinking about this. But if you wanted to hunt over, uh, let's say you're hunting over a small flat oak flat 
in in hilly country, but you've got this nice little oak flat, um, and you mentioned um, last week that you typically try to set up now when you're thinking about it. You try to set up um, so that you're elevated. Mm-hmm. So basically, that tells me you're you're sitting on the side of a of a hill or side of a rise or something Some that gets you rise, elevated yeah, like off a the ground. Or saddle, something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so in those situations, if you were going to hunt that little that 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 flat from a from a thermal perspective if you were hunting in the morning or in the afternoon let me say this if you were going to hunt it in the morning would you set up in that same elevated position or would you try to get down in the flat area in the morning see rises in the morning sets in the evening the air right yep Mm -hmm. so you said what I I would set up in the flat. And what was the other thing you said? No, I said so. If you were going to set up to hunt that, say it's sure. an oak flat, and would you try to hunt that from one of your elevated positions on the side in the afternoon or in the morning? Uh, oak flat. Not trying to trip you up, man. No, <laughs> evening. Because it's no way. So it would, no, it would be the morning because uh, if you want, if it's going to go down the flat, right? Yeah, in the morning, you the mo- in the morning. Yeah. If if you're going to hunt in the mornings, you're going to be better off to try to set up. Um, in the morning, you'd be better off to set up on the edges like that because as the as the sun. Well, let me let me back mm-hmm. up. We got to make this a little bit more of a challenge. Um, <laughs> so you, I still you, the, I still well, the first here's time, the so thing. More challenging. Uh, well, and I'm sitting here thinking about it, and and there's so many pieces of this that people typically don't think. So you got to think about the wind direction. I mean, if mm-hmm. if 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 they're if the wind's forecasted to do a certain thing, and you don't know the area, then you got to assume the wind is going to be blowing in that direction. And again, you get into situations where as you get more familiar with an area, you may know if it's calling for an east wind due to the terrain, and that's that particular location that's really going to be blowing southwest or southeast, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to think about where the sun rises and where the sun sets. Now, in the evenings, it doesn't make as much difference because as soon as the sun is is past the horizon, then the temperature is going to drop and the air is going to start falling. So if you are on the side of that, that, that hill, your scent's going down into that flat. It doesn't matter it, unless there's a wind strong mm-hmm. enough to carry it away, which yes. can happen. So, you got again, it's one of those things you have to keep thinking about all the time. In the morning... You want to set up on the side of one of those. And this is what, and you know, Jason talks mm-hmm. about this so much. Having so many hunting locations that you almost have to struggle to think about where you're going to hunt. But because you, you have to think about all the different scenarios. And that, that gets compounded tenfold when you start trying to, if you're trying to focus on hunting just on the ground. Because you have to take into effect, if you for a morning hunt, you have to think about the thermals are going to start to rise, which where it's going to start rising the soonest, which means which let's say you're in you're wanting to hunt 
part of a valley and you're wanting to do it from one of those elevated sides and you've got a you've got a trail going through where you want to you if you can you want to set up to where the sun's going to actually hit you first almost if that mm-hmm. makes sense because as soon as it hits the as soon as the sun hits the ground where you're at your scent's going yeah. to be going up here no that's a really good that's a really good way um, to, to put it but here's where it gets a little bit trickier um Let's say you're not hunting in that flat, and this is probably where I should have started because I think it's less I think it's less confusing. Let's say you've got a bench and you've hunted with me long enough to know you know I love hunting benches. But when you hunt a bench, and a bench is nothing but a a a place where if you're looking at a, a, a topo map, it's where the the lines sort of spread out. It means you're you're coming down Let's say you're coming down a mountain and you can see your your elevation, your contour lines um, coming down that mountain. And then you get to a certain point and those lines widen out a little bit and then they get yeah. narrow again. And what you've got there is it, it comes, you know, you start down the side of this hill or the side of this mountain and it flattens out just a little bit and then it drops off mm-hmm. again. That's a bench or shelf. And whitetails use them a lot <laughs> a, a lot and you'll you'll almost always find an active trail there and it's not just whitetails it can be whitetails it can be bear it can be coyotes it can be everything is going to use that um and i'm not even going to get into all the silence about wind tunnels and all that stuff if you're interested in that nobody better at it than than dan and fault um but if you're setting up to hunt something like that if it's a good spot and good enough spot that you want to hunt it several times throughout the season, you almost have to think about it from a perspective of having a morning um, blind or a morning hiding spot. I don't even like calling them blinds because mm-hmm. a lot of times they're not full blinds. But you want to have one in the morning and you want to have one in for the afternoon. And the morning hunt, you're typically going to be setting up higher than that yes. than that trail. So you're above it. So when the sun hits you, the, the air is rising. In the afternoon, you may want to set up below it. Again, depending on where it's set up, and again, most of the time, at least here, most of the time, you're going to see the most activity in the afternoons in the last hour. The sun's already gone over the horizon and the temperature's dropping. That's typically where you're going to see the, the activity in the afternoons here. In the mornings can be a little bit different. Usually... Um, other than maybe the 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 most mature animal in the woods, which I don't necessarily target, um, you know, most of the animals are going to be moving through these places, coming from food to bedding, or going to be doing it a little bit later in the morning. So you can pretty much count on the sun's being up, the temperature's already starting to rise, and you want to be above that trail. So I probably should have started off with that the one bench, first. The bench was definitely a lot the, easier to, flats. to think That's, about the question because the, the flat just had too many. I don't know. I was I was going too many different places, but the bench is perfect. Yep. Yeah, and it probably had, it it does probably have too many variables, and and I hate honestly I hate I hate hunting valleys like that um, for that reason. It, there's just mm-hmm. there's so many variables to it, um, and what's funny is you'll. You'll see so much deer activity down in those in those creek bottoms and those drainages and you know the, the the belly of a valley and everybody wants to hunt them and it's the absolute hardest and worst place you could possibly try you know, to that, hunt them because of the 
because and, of the air. Yeah. I mean, it's just you get busted. And, that, and that's what's funny because that you mentioned that because uh, one of the spots that I hunt um, in that one little in that little piece uh, near me, that one is it's a big bowl exactly with like a u a u-shaped ridge going all the way around it and it is a drainage it's like it drains in the swamp and the marsh you know creek bed fills up it get it empties fills up it empties mud everywhere and when i when i first started hunting out there that's where i found all the deer sign was going right across it in fact i took aubrey out there the other day on a little hike my my um 10 year old and uh i said yeah she said, how come all the, how come all the tracks are down here? Why do you always see deer and turkeys and stuff down here? And, I, <laughs> and, you know, obviously I couldn't really explain all that to her, but it was, uh, it was one of those things. Like when I was, when I was a young hunter and I first started hunting out there, I would hunt, you know, right at the belly, like right down there in the, like I pulled a little brush blind, blind together and sit right on the bottom and off some kind of trail leading up or down the ridge so i do that and yeah you'd never you'd get blown at so fast like it, it wasn't even close and i you know it's just one of those things but well you you see all the activity because the animals spend a lot of time mm-hmm. in those areas at night um but during the day you just you you and i'm not saying the animals won't use them during the day but they're, they're, it's so easy for them to detect you in those areas during the day you're wasting your time in most situations. Now, again, that area that you hunted with me um, that we've used as an example through a lot of this because I think that's the probably the only place that you've hunted on the ground here where you had some degree of success. Um, you can't get any more of a, a creek bottom than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's flat as it can be, but it's a different scenario. The creek makes it a, a different scenario. The surrounding ridges um, and the way they're set up make it a little bit of a different scenario because you've got um, either a natural barrier or, um, uh, well, let me rephrase this. You've got the natural barrier and you've got the ability for dependable wind direction which is what typically you don't have in those scenarios. Um, and again, I don't know if it's, if it's, I don't know if it's all because of the Creek. Um, I'm sure part of it's because of the river too, because that is a very mm-hmm. fairly large river. Um, and part of it too, may be the way the wind comes through, um, that area because of that, um, that one, it's not really a mountain, it's a big hill. Um, and just the way that, that, that whole area is shaped above that where Tom did his walkabout. I think that that contributes to it as well. And the deer don't have, they don't have a ton of options to get through that area. Then it's a pinch point. I mean, if you remember between the base of that hill and where you were set up, it, it narrows down to about 20 yards there. And then, you know, as you leave there, it widens out to a couple hundred yards when you get closer to the river. Um, it's just a great, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a great little setup. Um, and you don't find those often. So, uh, no, that, that was anyway, a great place. Well, I'm sitting here I rambling. I hope I want to go back there someday. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope I got the, oh, I hope you, I managed to get the did. point across about um, it. Though. And, that's actually my favorite place that we've ever hunted down there because we saw a lot of deer in like two days. Like, yeah, quite a few. 
and that was yeah. with three guys hunting back in there so um yeah uh no, let's see. You shot at one. Tom had all those run by him. I shot. A, I shot the one um, the second day that made me never vow never to shoot a three blade head again. <laughs> Another story. Um, and then Brandon. Brandon yeah, shot that nice buck on top. That last day. You had to go make, do that recon way up there. To go yeah. Get it. Well, it wasn't just way up there. It was, and you guys have never been here, but that, that little section of land goes, it probably goes a half mile up the river. And he was, I mean, he, Brandon was on another hill like that one in front of where you were hunting, but w- almost at the back end of the property. So, um, yeah, it was a long way back there. But, and uh, that's that, that counting all that the deer, nice deer that Tom probably um, scared out of there when he went spreading his scent all over the place, walking three or 400 yards past where he was hunting. yeah yeah but honestly and truly up there i don't know that that even had any bearing on it just because there's so many people that hunt that property those deer they're used to it i mean don't get me wrong they learn how to avoid it but you know we we still saw a bunch of deer i I saw his uh, Uh, i saw his headlights disappear for a moment but then it came then came back i I watched that whole thing which is what why that's so funny i saw you guys both with your headlights standing there talking tom nodding and then tom walking off and kept walking and kept walking and kept walking and you were watching him go (laughs) and i just saw your light there and his light going further and then you walked away and then he came back i just thought that was so funny but that was honestly though one of the I think that was probably one of the my favorite hunts that we've mm-hmm. we've, fun. we've had together. So we're gonna have to do something like that again. I know uh Tom's talking about and I haven't even mentioned this on the podcast, it kinda of just made me think about it, but our you know, we were Tom and I were actually supposed to be hunting bear this week. Um and that, that hunt was cancelled due to uh the COVID virus and the the Canadian border being closed, uh except mm-hmm. to essential traffic. So um, Tom's talking about coming down here sometime this fall, so I'm hoping to get maybe even a week um, to to chase whitetails and pigs with Tom this fall. Um, but yeah, we're gonna have to do another hunt like that soon. Whether we do it here, or maybe we do it up, you know, Michigan, or maybe somewhere in between next time. But uh, but anyway, it's back to our topic because I do want to wrap this thing up. Um, I think we've covered a little bit about terrain, covered a little bit about behavior, but I think the two mm-hmm. go kind of hand in hand. Um, I will uh, I will leave this discussion with the the same thing that I've, I've, I've preached so many times. Keep a journal, some kind of hunting journal, whether it's you keep a little notepad or maybe you do it in your phone or, you know, write it down when you get home, something. Um because you'll be amazed at how many times you'll start putting patterns together if you do that um, on a regular basis. You can't you can't half-ass it and do it you know do it for two or three days and then wait a month and do it again. But I have I can truthfully say I've probably learned more that has been able to make me successful, especially hunting hunting whitetails on the ground, um, simply by by doing that. Um, not always the case, but but most times, most times it's the it's the case. Um, so, anything else you want to add to that this conversation, Nick? I mean, I think we could probably sit here and talk about different scenarios. Yeah, I think we're good. I think hours. we covered it a roundabout way, and uh, and yeah, 
it's uh, I, I you know I learned quite a bit just sitting here. So. So the next time we do this, um, I think we're, I'm hoping we're going to have an episode in between before we do the third one. But I think the next time we talk about um, setting up a natural blind, whether you're doing and, and cover it from two perspectives. Things you can do now, areas that you might, if you're already pre-scouting, which you should be, um, if you're already scouting some now and you're thinking about some areas that you've hunted in the past, um, if you know, we'll, we'll talk about things that you can do to go in and set up some of those blinds now so they'll be less noticeable um, come opening day. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, opportunities for blinds that you can use uh, for all intents and purposes going in blind. So you don't have a blind set up, you're just going in and you – you're looking for a place to hunt, things that you can look for, uh, maybe some things that you can use as a blind that you might not have thought about, some of those kind of things. Um, and then we'll see where that discussion goes. And you and I can kind of keep trading some messages back and forth, talk about if there's an, you know if there's enough to talk about to have a fourth one of these. But um, hopefully people are finding something useful here. Uh, I think that's, so. That that's sounds definitely great. my intent. All right, man. Well, um, if I don't talk to you again, I hope you have a, an absolutely fantastic Father's Day yeah, coming up. Yeah, you as well, man. It's a shame and, we're not having uh, it at Compton, but, you know. Yeah, I'm, I kind of hate that. I saw uh, Neil Summers posted a picture from a few years ago. Of course, you had <laughs> wimped out and left because it was, it was hot, but... Uh, I, but, did. <laughs> I did. I did. From a, from a... I know. I took you. I was the one that... I think I'm... Didn't I take you... Did you drive nope, home I had that my time car and I had, I, can't um, I think I had, oh yeah, that's right. We, we That's right. You left early. You left early. Cause I, I carried, I carried Lori and Bella back to the hotel so they could cool off and you were going to hang out. I, I and went you there. Said, Man, I'm I literally think I went there and I waited until you got there cause you were going to come back. And then you got there, and I think I left yep. 15 minutes after you got there because I was just tired of sitting there sweating. It was that hot. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. But anyway, Neil posted that picture today, and it was, and I, I, I can't, I know I won't remember everybody, but I know Neil was in the photo. Jarrett Babinsack from Bone Broadheads was in the photo. Uh, Ryan Tucker, our good friend Samuel, Ryan, was Samuel in the photo. Um, and again, Samuel Clemens was in it. Um, so, yeah, and that's not not his real name, by the way, I don't think. No. If I remember correctly. Um, but uh, anyway, a great bunch of guys. Um, and, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, yeah, I'm really going to miss Compton's this year. But uh, just give us more I reason to look so forward that's to next year. That's kind of year. my attitude towards it now. Just It's going to be that much better. Yep. Yep. A lot of things – a lot of things I think are going to be that much better next year. So, well, all right, buddy. Well, uh, again, have a great Father's Day and uh, look forward to catching up with you a little bit next week when we talk about some yep. split Can't bamboo. Wait, man. And happy Father's Day to you and all of our dads out there. Thanks for listening. Yes, happy Father's Day to everyone. Everyone take care. Be safe in these crazy times we're living in. And We'll look to talk to you again in another week or two. Take care, all.